Hey guys, thanks so much for checking out another episode of A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, and I hope everyone's doing okay. A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole is a little podcast where I'll be digging through my vinyl collection of about 500 records and also my tiny brain of about 500 remaining brain cells and taking a light-hearted, laid-back, positive fanboys look at my favourite songs and bits of songs and artists that fall within a different, pointless and set theme every episode. It really is just an attempt to archive some stories, interviews and great music for like-minded rock music fans. I will choose from any song part or artist that has given me joy as a listener or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. It's not a countdown, because they are stupid, but I will leave my favourite choice for last. This is just a bit of chilled, unnecessary fun that hopefully inspires someone to support a musician by buying some tickets, music or merch, or listen to an old favourite album and check out some of this amazing shit that has formed the soundtrack of my life. a lot of people do like to share their opinions these days, please let me know if you think that I've missed anything in my record collection that I know and that I like by sending me an email at I will never check this email address at gofuckyourself forward slash cockgoblin that's cock spelt with a K and I'll get back to you as soon as I give a shit Seriously, if you do want to say hi, you can hit me up and follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast, or via the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com. I'd love to hear from you. The website also has Spotify playlists of all the songs used in each episode, past episodes, including the occasional bonus episode that I do, and some other golden magic. I also have small playlists of the great lesser-known artists that I highlight at the end of each episode on the Victims tab of the website. Please, please rate, review, subscribe and share the podcast if you're digging it. That is super helpful and appreciated. Thanks again, and here goes. Due to our stupid office boy, me, missing about seven pages of handwritten research, I am ashamed and happy to announce that this is the first four-part episode of the podcast, and hopefully the last. So I want to quickly thank a few people for good vibes and also for reviewing the podcast this week. Brett Wood, Ross Hetherington, Tanya Treneman, Glenn Howard, Alex Hughes, Annie O Superstar, NW Video, Joel, Nick Priest, Johnny Canuck, 67 in Canada, Steve Schenk, and Mark Bodner. The podcast got to number five in the Oz Apple Music History Charts, and it was a huge lift for my vibes this week, and it picked up a few new listeners too, so thanks again. So the first three episodes are definitely brought to you by our sponsor, Marijuana, because without the weed arrests, I think it would be one kid fucker, one murder, and some boring traffic arrests. So let's get into what I promise is the last part of Arrested, part four. So let's start with a stupid arrest. Chrissy Amphlett from the Divinals was arrested in Spain, aged 17, for busking.
Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine talking about his arrests. One, tell us about how you got arrested in the past. Okay. <laughs> Which time? <laughs> um, and, and then two, is there any movement like that that, that now you think makes sense hmm. is, uh, is the right way to go? Well, as far as my arrest record, it's, I think it's public record. I mean, there was four of the five were for civil disobedience. The other one was just a misunderstanding about a car. <laughs> uh, that was a very long time ago. Um, but, you know, it's, they've all been, you know, orchestrated plans to affect some particular change, normally labor issue related and, you know, whether it was a, against Nike or against guests that you stand with the workers who are trying to, um, you know, stop sweatshop abuses or stop abuses of worker or union busting efforts in hotels. And by my small role in it is to provide a little bit of extra news coverage and notoriety to the event by, you know, being in the middle of the street and it gets covered by Rolling Stone. Yeah, and, and it works because I remember, you know, I got arrested, Larry Lessig, all these important people in the movement, the Code Pink Women, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, minority leaders, etc. And then Rosaria comes on the last day because it was a whole week of civil disobedience, and then all of a sudden the press was like, "Okay, oh my God, there's yeah, yeah, being yeah. arrest!" Like on the first day, we broke the record for most number of people right, arrested at right. the Capitol. Nobody cared. Right, right, right. right. That's funny. Yeah, <laughs> and, I remember the judge telling me I was it was at the I think it might have been the last one that. Uh, it was to help hotel workers. We shut down the road to LA, the Century Park to uh, LAX because the hotels there were there was a big union busting movement going on there. And so then the, I'm, I'm later in front of the judge, and the judge is explaining to me like like I'm a toddler how this is not the way that change occurs in our country. And this I'm like and, I, and I, I'm like well what about Martin Luther King? He was arrested you know more times than you are years old right now. And mm -hmm. that is one of the ways that uh, you change the world is by is by putting your body on the gears of history and you make them stop in a particular place in a particular time to make a particular point. Beach Boys Carl Wilson was arrested at age 20 in 1967 for avoiding the military draft when he was drafted for Vietnam. Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters was arrested in Australia in 2000 and here's Taylor Hawkins and Dave Grohl talking about it. Yeah, me and him were on, we got mopeds down on the Gold Coast like everybody does, goes around, it was great fun. So we spent a couple days down there before the show. Show day comes, it's a beautiful day. We took the scooters. I think you even rode it up on stage like you were in Judas Priest for the first <laughs> song, didn't you? <laughs> yes. and then, so afterwards, we stayed, we hung, we partied. Uh, Dave had a, was, was overserved. And um, <laughs> there's a very irresponsible and barman. There's a very irresponsible barman backstage <laughs> who overserves Dave. <laughs> and then me and Dave were riding home on our scooters. And I wasn't hammered, actually. I had a bag of weed in my pocket, but he was hammered. And we both got stopped in one of those police 
uh, called a sobriety, sobriety checkpoint. checkpoint. I passed. Dave failed. So Dave had to go to jail. I took my scooter home, got, went, got in a cab, got his scooter, took it back, told our tour manager to go get Dave out of jail. <laughs> Next day, Dave got out of jail. Then he had to come back and go to court. All my life I've been searching for something, something never comes, never leads to nothing, nothing satisfies, but I'm getting close, closer to the prize at the end of the rope. All night long, a dream of the day, when it comes around and it's taken away, leaves me with the feeling that I feel the most, feel it come to life when I see your ghost. was arrested in 2010 for having pot on his tour bus. And Tommy Lee from Motley Crue and Brett Michaels were also investigated when they both went to a shooting range, which broke the conditions of their paroles, but no arrests were made. Motorhead was arrested on tour in Canada for drug possession in 1975, and as a result, he was fired from Hawkwind and started Motorhead the same year. And here's Lemmy talking about that time. It's very hypothetical, but without drugs, would there be a Motorhead? Oh yeah, there would be. Yeah, some sort. Would of... it be the same? Well, probably wouldn't be called Motorhead because that's slang for speed freak. <laughs> when you started Motorhead, um, that was after you was kicked out of uh, Hawkwind hmm. because of drugs. Well, because of the wrong kind of drugs. Yeah. Because they, they, they were, they were all taking drugs too. It was just different drugs, you know. 
So why was why was it so bad to be on the drugs you were on? Well, no, it was, I was the last speed freak. See, I was the one that kept them all awake nights, you know, and shit like that. So <coughs> they were all like dedicated dope smokers and taking acid men and, you know, and all that. And I was taking acid too, but I was a speed freak as well, you know. And Dick Mick was a speed freak. He got me into the band so you could have somebody to chum out with, you know. Yeah. And then he, he left and I was the only one left. So they were dying to get rid of me, really, ever since he left, you know. They didn't realise that it would screw the band if I did, you know. Yeah. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, you, you started out as a roadie for Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And you've said in so many interviews that the only drug you really hate is heroin. Yeah. That's true. It's the only one that I ever saw kill people. I never saw anybody die in anything else. Nothing. You know, it's always heroin. Or, or possibly downers. Yeah. You know, but that's the same sort of syndrome. Why do you think that heroin is so much worse than the other hard drugs? It's just like, it's too easy to fuck up and it's too good for people to deal with. The, the buzz must be fantastic. I've never had it, you know, but I mean, it must be great because people die for it, you know. Yeah. And they spend their entire lives looking for the next shot, you know. I mean, it's fucking terrible shit, you know. It really makes you into a dog and then it kills you, you know. Makes you into a thief and a whore, you know, and then, yeah. and then you die in a public toilet with an embolism in your fucking arm. I don't think so, you know. You think that more people should try uh, acid? No, I, actually, I didn't say that. I said that it made me a better person for having taken it. Yeah. But if you think you can do without drugs, go ahead and do without them, you know, because it's a very expensive hobby. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, the, the point is this. Drugs make you feel better. And as long as they do, people will want them. And as long as people want them, somebody somewhere is going to show up with them, yeah. right? So there's no point saying just say fucking no and all of that stuff. That just doesn't work, you know. A lot of the big musicians have... Um, actually given credit to, to drugs as, yeah, sure. uh, as a source of inspiration. Right. Um, well, they are, you know, as long as, it, as long as the buzz goes on. Yeah. H have you written any songs directly as a consequence of doing drugs? Oh, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about different drugs. I mean, some on speed, some on acid. Uh, Which are the ones you... Well, I've never done any acid since I started Motorhead. I mean, 75 was the last year I took acid. And I was still with Hawkwind then. Yeah. So I never done anything because I, I got sick of watching the same movie, you know. Kind of, I was doing from '67 till '75, so that's a pretty good run. That's a lot of acid. Yeah, it's a lot of acid. Believe me, it was a lot of acid because you know they say it doesn't work two days in a row. We found out if you double the dose, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but. Uh, I really don't advise kids to get on dope, you know, because uh, with a lot of them it does lead down to heroin. I mean, sometimes the straight people are right, and they're right in the fact that one drug will lead to another because you meet more people that are doing drugs, you know. Most of the arrests that I have mentioned in all four episodes are pretty tame, low-level stuff, but like the Lost Prophets singer story last week, check out that story if you want to vomit and lose a few kilograms. Anyway, here's another serious scumbag. Drama inside court one in the past few moments. The jury have now come back in uh, with verdicts on all of those charges. There were nine charges in total against Gary Glitter. He is being tried under his real name of Paul Francis Gadd. He has been sitting in the dock, shaking his head from side to side and muttering to himself as guilty verdict after guilty verdict has been returned here at Southwark Crown Court. Guilty of the attempted rape of a child under the age of 10. Guilty of five indecent assaults. Guilty of sex with a child.
child under the age of 13. That one charge alone potentially carries a sentence of life imprisoned. He is almost 71 years of age now, Paul Gad, so potentially he could die behind bars. His mood right now, very, very different to his demeanour this morning when we saw him skip into court. I watched as he entered the dock this morning at about 10 a.m. He gave a very flamboyant bow to the lip-speaking interpreters sitting there to help him. He is profoundly deaf. He has been following this trial and all of the evidence and all of the proceedings with the help of lip-speaking interpreters, two ladies who sit either side of him and they repeat word for word what each witness, what the judge has been saying, uh, Mr Justice McCreth, throughout this trial and he gave them a very flamboyant bow as he entered the dock uh, this morning. I'm told he actually said on his way into court, let's get this show on the road. Well for Gary Glitter the show is now very much at an end. Guilty verdict after guilty verdict has come back in here in the past few moments. And uh, throughout this two-week trial, we heard damning evidence from his victims detailing how he manipulated them, one of them in front of their parents. Yes, there were very, very disturbing aspects to all of these charges, really, from the very first one, which was uh, the attempted rape. He was found guilty of that was Easter 1975, all the way through indecent assault after indecent assault. Um, one of the victims, they had been to a, a Gary Glitter concert. Her mother was present, uh, and she was asked to leave, to, and, and she did, and she ended up with uh, the child being left alone with Gary Glitter backstage in a dressing room. This was in Bailey's in, in Watford and uh, the child was indecently assaulted uh, on two occasions by uh, Gary Glitter, Paul Gadd as he is being prosecuted under in this trial. Very, very serious allegations. Now of course he was the first person arrested as part of Operation U-Tree in October of 2012 in the post-Jimmy Savile investigation which was launched that week in October by the Metropolitan Police. The very first name they went looking for to speak to uh, was Paul Gadd. They arrested him. He gave no comment throughout any of his police interviews. He denied everything that was put to him, basically. In court, under cross-examination, he broke down in tears. He wept openly in front of the jury, saying that allegations had destroyed his life. He had never met any of these women. And he said this would not be the first time that people had made false allegations against him in return for money. It's the look of a pop star turned paedophile who has finally fallen from grace. As Gary Glitter arrived for sentencing today, gone were both the glamour and the rock. Instead, there was just a prison van. As the singer, under his real name of Paul Gadd, would go on to be told by the judge his offences against three schoolgirls were truly appalling crimes. Judge Alistair McCreeth told Glitter, I've read the impact statements of all three victims. It is clear in their different ways they were all profoundly affected by your abuse of them. You did all of them real and lasting damage, and you did so for no other reason than to obtain sexual gratification. The abuse took place at the height of Glitter's fame. One of the girls was younger than 10 when she was attacked. It's not the first time the showman's been convicted of sexual offences. In 1999, he was jailed for possessing 4,000 child abuse images. Then, seven years later, he was convicted of abusing two young girls in Vietnam. His defence team claimed Glitter is a very different man now after seeking professional help. But the judge said he could see no real evidence of atonement. 
As the judge handed down the 16-year prison sentence, there was no emotion from Gary Glitter. He looked over at a couple of fans who were in court clutching memorabilia. They gave him a wave and a thumbs up as he was taken away from the dog. For this disgraced singer, there will be no encore. He will be nearly 87 before he can be released from jail. Charlotte Grant, Five News. And another piece of shit very much in the Gary Glitter mould is a guy called Eric Rosser, who was John Cougar's keyboard player from about 1980 to 1982. And he was sentenced to 16 years in 2001 and was released in 2017. For the first time, the FBI is adding to its 10 most wanted, wanted fugitives list an individual accused of child pornography offenses. Eric Franklin Rosser is wanted for receiving, possessing, transporting, and distributing child pornography. Mr. Rosser is a professional concert and jazz pianist who ran a music school for children in Bangkok. The FBI began to focus on Mr. Rosser after recovering vast amounts of child pornography from the residence of one of his associates in the United States. Some of the items recovered during the course of the investigation included videotapes allegedly produced by Mr. Rosser, as well as videotapes in which Mr. Rosser himself appears with young children. As an FBI agent, I'm very proud that uh, we were able to work with the Royal Thai Police and uh, locating uh, Eric Rosser and apprehending him. He's a, uh, one of the FBI's uh, 10 most wanted fugitives, and we've been looking for him for quite a while. Uh, we've not had an opportunity to interview Mr. Rosser at length regarding his motivation for returning to Thailand. That is something that uh, we'll do in the aftermath of uh, all the uh, excitement today. I'm, I'm not the evil man everybody thinks I am, and I love Thailand, that's why I'm back here again. Let's get back to our drug guys. Huey Lewis bass player Mario Kipolina was arrested in 2006 for heroin possession and also in the early 2000s for burglary and did 90 days in prison. Quiet. Change your heart to the white 
let's move on. Me episode within an episode. Just a side rabbit hole on Power of Love. The song was written by Huey Lewis and the news band members John Kohler and Chris Haynes and was released as a double A-side single with Do You Believe in Love. It was their only top 10 single in the UK, making it to number nine, but it was a number one in Canada, America, Australia and Japan. Do You Believe in Love is right up there for me with Somebody to Love by Queen for vocal arrangements, but it's actually a cover of a song written by ACDC, Def Leppard, Muse, Huey Lewis, etc. producer Mutt Lang and was released by Mutt's band Supercharge in 1979, titled We Both Believe in Love, with Mutt on lead vocals. And the song has one of the greatest pop rock bridges too, in my opinion. Come on. Ignore that sax solo, and here's the bridge I was talking about. a bit of Mutt's version. singer Randy Blythe. Me being arrested, suddenly arrested at the airport in Prague after we landed, uh, handed a, uh, by, by a, like a SWAT team. These guys looked like they were there to apprehend bin Laden or something. They had masks and machine guns and stuff. Uh, then being handed a piece of paper telling me I was being charged with manslaughter 
uh, at a, for the death of a fan involving he, this fan had left the stage at a concert two years earlier. They were saying I had purposely, uh, hurt this guy, attacked him. And then he died a month later, went into a coma. And then two years later we show up. We didn't know. Nobody told us anyone was hurt. We had no idea. We show up two years later and met by this SWAT team at the end of this, suddenly met by them at the end of this runway in Prague and they arrested me and charged me with manslaughter. And I went to a 123 year old prison for like 37 days, 33 days in jail, 34 days in prison and paid bail twice, almost half a million dollars. You have to pay a pay bail twice sometimes apparently over there and then I got out and returned decided to go back to trial and was found not guilty that's the thing that boggles my mind you're a better man than I am I would have never left (coughs) this country again probably and yet you went back what went into your reasoning well you know you and a lot of other people say I never would have gone back but you know and at first I'd be like that that's, you know, that's kind of a bummer. But the fact of the matter is you don't know what you would have done until you're placed in my situation. You know, nobody, nobody really knows how they would react. My conscious, uh, compelled me to go back and provide the family of this young man, some answers the best I could as to what happened at that concert, because they never attacked me in the press. They never badmouthed me. They never came at me in person, you know, through lawyers, nothing. They just wanted to know what happened to their kid. Um, and even though the answers were very unclear, very nebulous, you know, I thought the best way to find out would maybe go and stand trial. Ike Turner was arrested multiple times, and here's some of the highlights. In 1959 for forging checks, 1975 for using an illegal blue box to make long-distance telephone calls for free, Ike Turner turned 30 in 1961 and had never used drugs and claims that Elvis and comedian Red Fox introduced him to cocaine. By 1970, he was a full addict and estimated that he had spent $11 million on cocaine in his life and eventually he was freebasing crack. In the 80s, he was arrested at least six times for drugs, weapons, dealing and eventually did 18 months in prison. Ike got clean in prison and stayed clean for nearly a decade, but eventually relapsed in 2004 while trying to help a friend break a crack addiction at a crack house. And Ike died in 2008 from a cocaine overdose. And here's Ike Turner in 1993, sort of taking credit for his beatings on Tina Turner, making her great. Piece of shit. It was a big time in the music world, but the stage success concealed a private life of violence. Now a film called What's Love Got To Do With It? based on Tina's biography, has reopened old wounds. It paints Ike Turner as a womanizing, cocaine-addicted monster who beat his wife with coat hangers and walking sticks and once threw boiling coffee in the face. Ike, who's recently served time in prison on drugs charges, claims it's a lie. Both he and Tina agreed to speak to me about their tempestuous life together. If everything Tina says about you is true, then you're a bad man. Well, well, I would say this, uh, uh, maybe so, if it was true, but, uh, 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 but if that's what it took to make her what she is today, then uh, uh, I have no regrets. There's no scars on Tina. You can take a real close look at her. She never had any skin graft on her face anywhere. If I put coffee on her and she got, uh, uh, from what I understand, she said 33 and 30 degree burns or whatever it was, I'm sure that it would have been, she would have had to have some skin graft or something. Like how bad were you into cocaine? Oh, I was uh, terrible, man. Terrible. 
Best thing that happened to me was when I went to jail, man. And so that's when I got my life back together. I can gladly say now, man, that I've been clean now, man, for five years, you know, a little over five years. And I thought that I had no personality, but have a listen to how shitty this news reporter is. Turner, you'll remember him as not only an architect of the music industry, but also as Tina Turner's former husband. We're being told that he died earlier today in San Diego. The news uh, just coming into us at the CNN newsroom. Apparently, he lived in San Marcos, which is in northern San Diego County. The coroner saying that, that he died. We don't know exactly what he died of. We do know um, that he was 76 years old. And, of course, you'll remember that he, uh, well, he was an icon, really, in the music industry, and especially his relationship with Tina Turner made him famous not only in this country but around the world. You'll remember that, uh, of course, they broke up, and there was a big movie that, that was out in, I think, the late 80s or the early 90s called What's Love Got to Do With It? about their tumultuous life and times. But again, the news coming into CNN.com that Ike Turner is dead at the age of 76. Megadeth main man Dave Mustaine was arrested in 1989 for impaired driving when he had seven or more drugs in his system and he was forced into a rehab program, the first of 15 rehab visits in his life. Iron Maiden drummer Nico McBrain was arrested in 2003 when he drove his black Jaguar softly into a parking attendant. Twice. You'll take my life, but I'll take yours too! You fire musket, but I'll run you through. So when you're waiting for the next attack, you better stand, there's no turning back. The feel the sounds, the times begins. But on this battlefield, no one wins. The smell of mercury smoke and horses breath. As the virgin is disturbed. Kiss's Ace Fraley was arrested in 1983 after a police chase in his DeLorean. He was charged with drunk and reckless driving and leaving the scene of an accident after hitting four cars in the chase. He was also fined 600 bucks and lost his license. He was arrested again in 84 for drink driving and again in 85 for trying to buy drugs with a forged prescription. And here's Ace singing a song written by two guys from part one of Arrested, which is Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, 2000 Man. Well, my name is a number, it's on a piece of plastic film, and I've been growing funny flowers outside on my little windowsill, but don't you know, I'm a 2,000 man, and my kids, they just
Kiss's Peter Chris was also arrested in 2005 for having a gun in his bag at an airport. Liam Gallagher was arrested along with Oasis drummer Alan White after a bar fight in Munich but was released without charge and Liam was also arrested after a flight out here to Australia when he headbutted a 19-year-old fan who asked him for a photo. Oasis guitarist Bonehead was also arrested in 1999 for being drunk and disorderly in London. And here's Oasis with a great Noel Gallagher sung B-side, Half the World Away. I would like to leave this city This old town don't smell too pretty And I can feel the warning signs Running around my mind And when I leave this island I book myself into a soul asylum Cause I can feel the warning signs Running around my mind So here I go Still scratching around in the same old hole My body feels young but my mind is very old So what do you say You can't Don't love the fucking choir. know you're in a huge band when a shit community choir covers one of your b-sides anyway all right let's move on anthrax's scott ian and cliff burton from metallica were arrested together and here's scott ian talking about it favorite cliff burton memory well uh, I can't remember if this is in I'm the Man, the first book, but we got arrested together in London back in like 84. I, uh, I had flown over to do promotion for our first album, Fistful of Metal. Metallica was in London because they were supposed to do a tour. It was uh, The Rods, Metallica, and Exciter. That huh. was a, it was a UK tour that actually at the time was canceled because of lack of ticket sales, if you can imagine, right? And Metallica was recording Ride the Lightning at the time up in Denmark, but it left the studio for like a month because they were supposed to do this tour, 
tour gets canceled. Studio's booked because they were supposed to be gone. So they're stuck in London. And uh, the label, our mutual label, Music for Nations at the time, they got an apartment for us to hang out in. And Metallica was going to be there for like a month and do press. And they booked a couple of shows at the Marquee, the old club back in the day in London. And I was there. I was only supposed to be there for a few days, but now I had a bed to sleep in. And was like, they were like, yeah, you could hang here. So I ended up staying for a few weeks. And anyway, Cliff, Cliff needed a new Walkman. That really dates the story. So yeah, Cliff needed a Walkman. So we leave the apartment. This was, it was still cold out in London too. It was like early 84. And we're both in big winter coats and we're down in a tube station heading to like Tottenham Court Road where he was going to buy a Walkman. And uh, two police walk, I'll keep it short because the story's out there. But anyway, we get arrested. They, the, the cops think because we had long hair, we must be carrying drugs. And even though we said we're not, they were like, well, we could bring you in on suspicion. And I'm like, uh. it's good to see that you obviously have nothing better to do. And that didn't help me being snarky. <laughs> and, uh, and we get taken in and I get thrown into like this concrete cell with just a little tiny window in the door, stripped down to my underwear and it's freezing cold. And I'm like sitting there for six hours thinking it's like Midnight Express. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like they're going to fight. And I knew because Cliff had a whole bunch of weed back in the apartment. And at some point... Like, I heard noise out in the hallway, and I, I, op I was banging on the door, and I, one of the cops opened the thing. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, we're taking your friend back to the flat to search it. And I, say, Cl uh -oh. I see Cliff, like, as they take him out, because he had a whole bunch of weed. I'm like, oh, we're screwed. That's it. Midnight Express. I'm never going <laughs> to see my family again. And a couple hours later, they bring him back, and, and they give me my clothes back and they say get dressed the captain wants to see you and I'm thinking like what's going on here and we go in the captain's office and Cliff is sitting there kind of half smiling at me and this captain starts apologizing to us you know he's, you gotta understand we have a lot of problems with people selling drugs you know and it's a, it's a big football match today and blah 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 and I'm like wait a minute so we're okay here like everything's fine and then I lost my mind. I started screaming at this guy for like three minutes. Like, I'm hiring a lawyer immediately. The Jew comes out. I'm getting a lawyer. Like, just instantly. And uh, Cliff's like kicking me. Like, shut up. They're letting us go. And anyway, we finally leave. And uh, I'm like, dude, what about the weed? Like, how? So I'm going to ask all of you here and on Facebook Live. If there's like 10 cops walk into this little like two-bedroom flat... Where's the first place you look in, in an apartment if, you, like, you're looking for a bunch of drugs? Where would, you, where would, would it be hidden? Not the fridge. Fridge? Under the mattress. Yes. Exactly where his giant bag of weed was. They never looked under the mattress. The worst wow. cops <laughs> in London history, apparently, um, because they never looked under the mattress. It's like, seriously... Someone was watching over us that day. Kirk was sitting in the apartment when the cops came in with Cliff. Like 10 dudes and Cliff come walking in. And he, he said, he goes, I'm just sitting there practicing guitar on the couch. And all these guys walk in and Kirk was just like. Because <laughs> he knew, like, oh, my God, we're, in, we're busted because Cliff's got a big bag of weed. And uh, they never found it. It was unbelievable. And they let us go. And. The end of the day, Cliff never got his Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> Store was closed. Scott Ian was also arrested in 1997 in Florida, and here's Scott talking to Kerry King from Slayer, who incidentally has never been arrested. I've never been arrested. 
somehow. <laughs> I was arrested once for my stupid Yankee prank years ago. I broke into Legends Field in Tampa and ran the bases. I was actually drinking with Zach that day. We were at this guitar show. So all, all stories have to yeah. do with Zach and Don. All stories. Drank all day like with him at this guitar show and then later that night with my buddy, I was out of my mind drunk and decided at like four in the morning I had to hop the fence and go in there to see the Thurman Munson monument and it ended badly. I mean, I went to jail and the end end of the story was I went on Howard Stern and got to personally apologize to George Steinbrenner, who owned the Yankees then, and, and uh, they ended up dropping all the charges. James Hetfield was also arrested after pissing in a park, and police received a complaint from a lady who claimed that he exposed himself to her, which was bullshit and no charges were laid. Edward Van Halen was arrested in 1995 when he boarded a plane in California with a loaded gun in his carry-on baggage. He was fined $1,000 and the gun was confiscated. David Lee Roth was also arrested in 1993 for being in possession of a $10 bag of weed. So what's your take on this whole (laughs) arrangement here? I'm not sure. My first shock was, why is David Lee Roth copping his own pot? In the park, the park is like the most dangerous place in the world. Anybody who's ever been to New York, you just don't go into that park. Not only that, you, 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 you tend to be ripped off or something in there. Plus, why would you only buy $10 worth of pot at a time? Because you've got more millions than anybody I know. Well, Howard, I don't smoke millions, millions of dollars worth of pot. Right. And, you know, for many, many years, it was something like um, buying a pretzel and a soda pop on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, right. Kind of thing. And um, I understand the queen up the park situation. I, I see both sides of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> well, yeah, that's I'm why I was kind upset. of a rock and a hard place here. You know, it's, I'm told this is a $35 ticket here. Do you know anything about that? Well, I thought it was like, the most I could find is like 250 bucks. I'm the, all the police told me that that's what happens for multiple bus if you have five or six or seven times. So in, in, in essence, marijuana is legal in this country because... Yeah, you get a traffic ticket. Yeah, you get a traffic ticket. summons. There was no fingerprinting or no mugshot or jail cell or... But here's what I don't understand. Why didn't you just call Jackie if you needed pot? Why would you go why would you go to the danger? And why did you buy... Th- wait, wait, let's go through this. What happened? What were you doing that night? Which beautiful woman were you with? It was in the afternoon. What, were you do- what was going on that day? You know what, guys? In, in lieu of who knows what kind of fine or what kind of situation we're dealing with here, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm really kind of unaware, and I don't know how, you know, I don't want to make a joke out of it. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't want to, you know, maybe this is a conversation we should have after. Like after yeah, you know, maybe we'll yeah. see you on one of those public service announcements. Yeah, maybe hey, be, that'll be good. Just, you know, Hi, this is Diamond David Lee Roth here, and I just want to remind all you kids not to smoke any pot <laughs> because uh, it's bad for you. Or at least don't inhale like Clinton. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. You, was, I, you know what? If, if your dog poops on the sidewalk here, I think it's a $100. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know what? You were smart not to buy pot from Jackie because he'd rip you off. <laughs> I think you'd stand a better chance in the park. But that park's a scary place, yeah, man. Yeah, you don't mind dealing Actually, with those no, no, people. no, no. It's, it's not a terribly scary place. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there, and you know, in but all you can sunny, buy- there's a lot, a lot of people around, and so forth. But, but I know uh, that good, but good pot is like four hundred dollars an ounce. So for ten dollars, you probably just got like a joint. Just a little walk in the park, Howard. Yeah. Just a little. I think you did creative ten dollars I ever spent. I guess. <laughs> On the 
23rd of July 1977, John Bonham and some of Led Zeppelin's staff and management were arrested for beating up promoter Bill Graham's staff, reportedly over payments. Led Zeppelin did one more show in the US on the next day, which was their last. Two days later, on July 26, Robert Plant received news that his five-year-old son Carrick had died and the tour was cancelled and the band never toured America again. Jimmy Page was also arrested twice in the 1980s for cocaine possession. And just a weird story about Robert Plant, it was reported that he was arrested in May 1977 for being drunk and pulling a knife at an airport in Atlanta. The only issue was he was in England on a horse riding trip and the guy who was obviously an imposter but just used Robert Plant's name was in a wheelchair. But Robert Plant was arrested in 1967 on a careless driving charge. Def Leppard was also arrested in 1995 for spousal abuse when he got into a fight with his wife at LAX and he slammed her head against a wall and a restroom door. I didn't think Rick Allen was that kind of guy because he always looks harmless to me, or at least semi-harmless. He was ordered to stand... (laughs) Sorry about that. He was ordered to attend AA meetings and did community service on a graffiti removal team. And let's hear a one-armed round of applause for Rick for hitting a woman.
host of the show And you'll find that he also hates saxophones do like sax but that one annoyed me for some reason sax is like a good sauce which works for certain dishes but sometimes it's like soy sauce on ice cream for me but it's always funny and thanks to rob dean for the little ditty all right let's move on original alice in chains singer lane staley was arrested in sweden in 1993 when he pulled a guy out of the crowd and punched him in the face security threw the guy out and he called police the band then tried to flee Sweden, but police caught them and Lane was arrested, but was released and actually congratulated by the police, as the guy's brother had told the police that he was fighting people in the crowd and Lane's action had stopped him. Alice in Chains' original bass player, Mike Starr, was arrested in 1994 when he was trying to check in for a Texas flight with a stolen suitcase and he had weed on him and he did 30 days in jail in Houston. He was arrested again in 2003 for doing drugs on a plane when his father was escorting him to a rehab facility. And he was arrested again in 2005 for vandalism, for pulling a hood ornament off a car. Again in 2009 in LA on a narcotics charge. And once again in 2011 on another drug charge. And he passed away in 2011. At about 1.42 this afternoon, we received a call of a possible death at the address of 1986 South Richard Street in Salt Lake City. When officers arrived at this location, they discovered that Michael Starr was deceased in this residence. The medical examiner's office responded to this location, took possession or custody of the body, and transported that to their facility, and we are awaiting cause and manner of death that will be provided to us from them. It was February 16th. We did arrest uh, Mr. Starr. He had a warrant for drugs, and he also had some prescription medications with him that he did not have prescriptions for. And those prescription medications were six Opana and six Alprazolam.
Most of the members of the Grateful Dead were arrested for drug possession in New Orleans in January 1970. And here's Jerry Garcia telling that story. In New Orleans, would you tell us about that? There's nothing much to tell, really. I missed most of it. I came walking, and I went went out with some hippies after the show. I went over to visit some people in New Orleans, and we sat up raving most of the night. And uh, finally, about I guess about four in the morning or five, maybe, I went back to the hotel, and I'm walking down the corridor of the hotel with my guitar. I noticed that on our floor, about every other door is open. The lights are turned on, and nobody's around. You know, this is peculiar in the middle of the night. So I come, I'm coming up to my room, and I notice the ro- the door to my room is open. Hey, you know, and I can walk and I go walking past my room, I, and I look in, and there's a couple of guys going through my suitcase in my room, and I oh god, I knew right away. Oh, so I continue walking, you know. <laughs> this guy comes out of my room and comes. And I look back down the hall, and here's this guy leaning out of the room, my beckoning, you know, hey you, <laughs> come back here. So they took me down to where everybody else was, which was in jail. And there, there's everybody. I can walk into the squad room, and there's everybody in the. Everybody in our scene sitting on the floor, you know, hey, Garcia, hey, man, join the crowd, you know. There, and that was it, you know, we were all, we were all busted, we were all nailed. They had great fun with us, too, I might say, I might add, too, the Southern cops, you know, they had a lot of fun with us. They had just what they wanted, hippies, you know, oh, boy. Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead guitarist who kept the counterculture of the 1960s, rocking and rolling right into the 90s, died today in California. He was 53. Garcia was found dead at a drug rehabilitation center reportedly of natural causes. Correspondent John Blackstone has the Jerry Garcia story. For Jerry Garcia, there were tributes today all the way from the sidewalks of San Francisco. I'm more numb right now than anything else. To the halls of the United States Congress. I get called out of a meeting and was told the news and I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach. By the 1990s, Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead should perhaps have been museum pieces. But instead, these survivors of the psychedelic 60s just kept packing them in. It was the best example of how music can penetrate every age, every strata of society and make us as one. Hey, what the For Jerry Garcia, the goal was not to make records, it was to play music live, to improvise, make every performance different. He wanted to be a good musician, and, and, uh, you know, on on the good days, you know, he was a great musician. I don't care if my works survive, you know, or anything like that. I'm not really that attached to my own work. And in fact, that is sort of embarrassing in a way. But millions are attached to Garcia's work. The Grateful Dead is the top live band in the United States, grossing $50 million last year. And their fans, the Deadheads, are legendary. Oh, it's like the Gypsies. You know, we get together. It's a tribal stomp. Though Garcia spent much of his life fighting drug abuse, that was not the only legacy of the 60s he kept alive. That's something from the 1960s, is is hope, is love, is peace, is creativity. Those are wonderful ideals. We would all like to be able to live an uncluttered life, a simple life, a good life, you know, and like think about moving the whole human race ahead a step. From counterculture to mainstream, America is grateful to have had Jerry Garcia. John Blackstone, CBS News, San Francisco. And that's part of our world tonight. Dan Rather reporting for the CBS Evening News. Good night. 
Breaking news into Rockfeed. Marilyn Manson has turned himself in to police after an incident that occurred in 2019 left him facing two misdemeanor simple assault charges. The incident went down during one of his shows in August of 2019 at the Bank of New Hampshire Pavilion. A woman who was working as a videographer contracted by the venue alleges she was spit on by Manson. Manson could be seen on video spitting at the camera and it's believed that some of his saliva came in contact with the woman's arm. Police say that the arrest warrant was issued back in October of 2019 and the woman reported the incident shortly thereafter, though they claim they were unable to compel Marilyn Manson to turn himself in on the warrants. Manson's attorneys denied that was true, claiming they have been in routine contact with authorities since that time. The Guilford Police Department in New Hampshire has confirmed that Manson turned himself into police last Friday and was released on a personal recognizance bond. Manson was released on several conditions, mainly that he won't commit any crimes while on release, he won't have any contact with the victim, and will make sure he appears at all court hearings. Manson has faced a myriad of lawsuits and allegations against him within the last year or so. Four women have sued him for alleged sexual assault. Manson has denied all claims. Bon Jovi's Richie Sambora was arrested in 2008 for drink driving and was placed on probation for three years. And here's one of the world's greatest power ballads with Sambora's backing vocals showing he is a far better singer than John Bon Jovi, in my opinion. Actually, cancel that. I found Sambora singing I'll Be There For You live at Madison Square Garden with keyboard player Dave Bryan, who we mentioned in episode 8 and 9's Name Changes, stepping up to do and smash Sambora's BVs, while John, I presume, goes for a poop. My dear friend, my right-hand man, guitar player extraordinaire, the concierge. A little something we wrote from an album called New Jersey. This little song called I'll Be There For You. dedicate this song for all you all out there tonight for being there for me over the last couple years thank you very very much I'll be there for you I heard your suitcase say goodbye 
For those of you who A, don't care, or B, don't think Sambora is a better singer than John Bon Jovi, I, A, don't care, and B, You say it right, a thousand fingers And now you're swimming toward the shore Left me haunted me in my tears You won't save me One more chance now So I know I had the horrific Ian Watkins story from The Lost Prophets last week as the end story. But as I fucked up and missed a bunch of stories that made up this last part of Arrested, I'm going to add another big story, which fascinated me when I heard it a few years ago. I don't listen to Scandinavian black metal at all, but this story is crazy nuts. The story is about a Norwegian black metal band called Mayhem, 
Mayhem were formed in Oslo in 1984 and the band was looking for a new singer by 1986 and hired a Swedish singer called Per Olin, whose stage name was Dead. And to audition for the band, he mailed the band a demo tape along with a dead mouse tied to a crucifix. Anyway, Dead committed suicide in April 1991 by slitting his wrist and shooting himself in the head with a shotgun and left a suicide note saying, excuse the blood. Anyway, the band's guitarist called Euronymous found his body before he called the police and he drove to a nearby store and bought a disposable camera and took photos of the body, which were later used for a live bootleg album cover. There was also rumours that Euronymous ate parts of Dead's brain and made necklaces out of pieces of his skull. The band's bass player, Necro Butcher, was affected by all the craziness and left the band and was replaced by a guy called Varg. Varg and Euronymous around this time were burning Christian churches, which was fueling their image and the band's profile. Euronymous and Varg planned to blow up a 700-year-old cathedral in Norway to coincide with the release of their album, as the cathedral was included on the band's album cover. But on the 10th of August 1993, Varg drove 518 kilometres to Euronymous's house in Oslo and stabbed him 23 times, and he was arrested and charged with arson and murder and served 15 years in prison. And here's Varg talking about the murder. He was planning to, to, uh, to kidnap me. He was planning to knock me out with an electro-shock pistol like the type that security guards carry and um, tie me up take me into the forest and uh, make a snuff film while torturing me to death. And of course, uh, <laughs> I took it serious. And apart from that, you just, if you were talking about it, like in the shop to everybody and anybody, I wouldn't have taken it serious, but he didn't. He just told, you know, a select group of friends. You know, and one of them, you know, told me. And later on, he, he wrote a letter to me, you know, as if we were friends which of course confirmed my suspicion that he had some plans. You know? Why did he suddenly want to be friend? You know? Of course, to have an excuse to you know, get close to me without working any suspicion. The only reason he, he had to contact me was a contract between Bursum and his label. So he sent me the contracts and wanted me to sign them. And he wanted to meet when we were signing them. Okay? I don't, it's no reason to wait. Let's just go to Oslo and get done with it. So I drove to Oslo. But of course, it takes some time to get to Oslo. You know, it's uh, 500 kilometers of uh, bad roads and mountains, you know, so uh, it took some time to reach. I think we were there at uh, 3 o'clock or maybe 4 o'clock. So he was sleeping. I told him, well, I don't care if you're sleeping, just open the door. And he opened the door, uh, which is rather strange, really. You know, he just opened the door. And uh, even though he had plans to kill me, and uh, when I, he had this beeper, you know, and uh, when I got up in the apartment, he, uh, he panicked. Because, you know, he probably, you know, he had plans to kill me. He, uh, I was aggressive, you know, so he panicked. He attacked me, he kicked me in the chest, I just threw him to the ground. Uh, a bit stunned, really, because, you know, he attacked me, you know. I didn't expect it at the, at the time. And uh, I was stunned for a while. He was just sitting on the floor. And suddenly he got up, trying to, to get to his knife in the kitchen. And uh, I thought, well, if he's going to have a knife, I'm going to have a knife. So I had a pocket knife, <laughs> this small pocket knife. I got it up and uh, prevented him from getting into the kitchen. And I was in the, so he didn't manage to get his knife. And then he started off against, um, started to run off towards his bedroom. 
where we kept the shotgun that Dead shot himself with, as well as electroshock pistol. It's turned out later on that he didn't have any of these things in the, in the bedroom, but I believed it at the time. And that is the reason I followed him. And instead of going into the bedroom, he just left the, whole, the building, really. He just started to run down the stairs. And I followed him and managed to stop him. And of course, I had a friend with me, actually the guitarist of Mayhem. And of course, he was rather shocked. And uh, I waited because I didn't know how he was going to react. You know, he was the guitarist in Mayhem. So for all I knew, he could attack me as well. Maybe they planned it, you know. Get a bit paranoid in situations like that. So I just waited for, for, for well, what's going to happen. I just waited. Also, was on the floor. He, uh, he broke a, a lamp on the wall. So he was swimming in glass fragments uh, with, with uh, only his underwear. So he was rather bloody. And um, this other guy just ran past me. And of course, I understood that uh, he did, okay, he's not a part of it. So I asked him, are you okay? And he just ran off. And then I remember that he had my car keys. And I had blood all, blood all over my, myself. And uh, Osset got up and attacked me again. So I finished Osset off. I uh, just, uh, you know, what do you say, stab, shop. Stabbed him in the skull, so he died immediately. And I followed the other guy. He ran to the car. So I managed to calm him down. You know, he gave me the car keys, I opened the car. You know, and uh, we drove back. Here's original bass player Necro Butcher talking about the photos and saying he also had plans to kill Euronymous as well. Tragic thing happened to my band. Uh, one of my best friends also killed himself. And uh, as I'm trying to cope with this, Euronymous tells me that he has taken photos of his dead body. I got very upset by this and I told him, I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to kill you. So burn the photos before you even, even talk to me again. Because we had a different reaction on what happened. He, he almost felt like he was happy about it while I was down with grief uh, completely. I was crying and stuff, you know, for years. And he didn't give me any room to grief. Uh, I was very mad at him. So when he was killed, he was my best friend for 10 years, but I never cried over, over his death. Actually, I thought maybe the cops would think that it was me who did it because I had plans to kill him myself. It's like, I'm such a softy, you know. So actually he started to call me and was like, get, you know, I needed to come to see him, blah, blah, blah. And then in the end I came into his apartment, listened to the Mysterious album. And uh, he wanted to know if I uh, wanted to return to the band. And uh, at that time I thought maybe he threw the photos away because I never saw any up until then. And then uh, we were all good again, and we were just planning the 10th anniversary for Mayhem. It's going to happen the next year, and I'm going to go into the studio and uh, re-record all the bass lines uh, for the Mysterious. Uh, I guess two or three weeks later, he was killed. So I kind of reconciliated by then, because I'm such a softy. So when he was killed, went to the funeral, 
I was already in a band with Maniac called Flesh Wounds. And uh, met up with Hellhammer there and I told him that, hey, you know, uh, let's continue. Everybody giving Hellhammer the credit to follow, to do, to keep it alive, but, uh, but uh, yeah. So I brought in Maniac. We started to rehearse again in 90, 1994. Uh, we met in the funeral on uh, 10th of, or, uh, 20th of August, uh, 93. But it took a year before we were started to rehearse again because the guitarist problem issue was, there was an issue. First, we were thinking about Blackthorn. Obviously, we didn't know that he was uh, in on the killing. And we just couldn't get hold of him on the phone, which was a little bit strange. But uh, because he was in custody for, and got seven years in jail for driving uh, Kankrishnak uh, from Bergen to Oslo. Got a lot of years to reflect on that now. Anyway, that, I promise, is the end of the Arrested episodes. I did blow about an hour chasing a stupid Billy Joel arrest story, but they were all just stupid arson jokes with the punchline being something to do with... Listening to all these stories, it does make me wonder about all the shit these famous musicians would have got away with too. Thanks again for listening and rating and reviewing. And thanks to Paddy Cummings at Fingerprint Audio for tech help and Rob Dean at Mr. Miyagi Studios for the stupid podcast songs. Check out the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com for all the past episodes, bonus episodes and playlists of all the songs used in each episode. And you can say hi on Facebook and Instagram, arockandrollrabbithole podcast. A good buddy's band have just released a rockin' single, and with no tours, it'd be great if you could all buy their new single. It's a couple of bucks on iTunes. And here it is, Electric Mary with the King of Rock and Roll, and I'll see you next week. And you can check out the Victims tab on the website for some more of Electric Mary's awesome music. Thanks again, guys. I appreciate you all. We'll see you.